This semester we are studying the life of Moses. The life of Moses. Moses is one of the most uh, prominent figures in the Bible. Moses is one of the few people whose story we get in the Bible from the time he's born until he dies. And though we learn very quickly that Moses does not display um, the most natural gifts for the task to which he has been called. God doesn't care, apparently. (laughs) He appoints Moses anyway to serve as the mediator for his people, the one who will lead his people out of Egyptian bondage and into the freedom of uh, serving him, eventually into the promised land, although I don't want to spoil it for you, but Moses doesn't get there. Um, As we'll see this morning, though, the whole process for Moses and for the people is a massive, massive struggle. I'm sure that for most of you, you uh, have experienced uh, struggle in your own life. You've been around it, if not in your life, in the lives of others. You probably know what it is at this point in your life to struggle. I, I can promise you that if you're new to reading the Bible, that the Bible is a book from beginning to end that understands human struggle. In fact, the name Israel, the very name itself Israel, means to struggle with God. If you are looking for a clean, polished view of life where everything gets nicely tied up in a bow or the things that are hard get swept under the rug, then you will not like the Bible. Um, The Bible is very candid, very graphic about the reality of struggle in our lives and in our world. That being said, I want to start this morning with an anecdote that I find at least sort of funny. Not a very good transition here, but um, I think it'll it'll have a place and you'll see why. I read a a story recently about a local pastor, an American pastor, who visited Timbuktu. That's a real place, by the way, in West Africa. Not just a place you threaten to send your kids. And the missionaries uh, there were telling the pastor that in their culture... The larger the women were, the more beautiful they were thought to be. The larger the women, the more beautiful they were thought to be. In fact, a young missionary who had a smaller, trimmer wife said the nationals told him that she was a bad reflection on him. He was obviously not providing well enough for her. So there's a proverb in that part of Africa that goes like this. If your wife is on a camel and your camel cannot stand up, then you know that your wife is truly beautiful. Wise man once said, if your wife is on a camel and the camel cannot stand up, then that's how you know that your wife is truly beautiful. Now let me be clear, I'm not encouraging you to use that in any way. Take no responsibility for what happens after this morning. But I do want to make this point, uh, use this story to make this point. Our culture, where we live, the air that we breathe, affects the way that we see things, Right? The culture that we find ourselves in affects the way that we see and measure things. Things like beauty, things like success, things like justice, things like security. So it's easy to come to a passage like the one that we have before us this morning and think, look, this is so culturally distant that it couldn't in any way be related to the life that I am living as a man. The people of Israel, uh, they fall into a panic. And their great solution is to create a calf out of gold. Now, I think that you've probably never thought that before in your life. My life's in a panic. Let me go find a calf of gold, right? 
They, they make a calf of gold, and they call the calf God, and they use this calf to put their minds and their hearts at ease in the midst of their panic. On the surface, it all seems so archaic, so silly, so in, unsophisticated, so far away from our lives as men, as American businessmen, as husbands, as fathers, uh, as leaders. But I hope that you'll see this morning that this story, though it is indeed culturally distant, 3,600 years so, it's not that far away at all from where you sit as a man in Dallas, Texas. The golden calf temptation is alive and well in its own way among us. And I'll go even further this morning and suggest that one of the ways that the golden calf temptation is alive and well, one of the golden calves that we all share in common is the one that we call the American dream. The American dream. And I'll explain more, but let's first read the passage together. And as we read, I want you to do this for me. I want you to pay attention to what God's people really want from the calf. What do they want from the calf? What are they seeking? Let me read together. Let me read for us now as we read it together. Exodus chapter 32, verses 1 through 20. Moses wrote, When the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people gathered themselves to Aaron and said to him, Up, make us gods who shall go before us. As for this fellow Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. So Aaron said to them, Take off the rings of gold that are in the ears of your wives, your sons and your daughters, and bring them to me. So all the people took off the rings of gold that were in their ears and brought them to Aaron. And he received the gold from their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool and made a golden calf. And they said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it. And Aaron made a proclamation and said, Tomorrow shall be a feast unto the Lord. And they rose up early the next day and offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings. And the people sat down to eat and to drink, and they rose up to play. The Lord said to Moses, Go down, for your people whom you have brought up out of the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves. They have turned aside quickly out of the way that I commanded them. They have made for themselves a golden calf and have worshipped it and sacrificed to it and said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. The Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people, and behold, it is a stiff-necked people. Now, therefore, let me alone, that my wrath may burn hot against them, and I may consume them, in order that I may make a great nation of you. But Moses implored the Lord his God and said, O Lord, why does your wrath burn hot against your people, whom you have brought out of the land of Egypt with great power and with a mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians say with evil intent that he bring them out to kill them in the mountains and to consume them from the face of the earth? Turn from your burning anger and relent from this disaster against your people. Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, your servants to whom you swore by your own self and said to them, I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven. In all this land that I have promised, I will give to your offspring and they shall inherit it forever. And the Lord relented from the disaster he had spoken of bringing on the people. And Moses turned and went down from the mountain with the two tablets of the testimony in his hand. Tablets that were written on both sides, on the front and on the back they were written. The tablets were the work of God. And the writing was the writing of God, engraved on the tablets. When Joshua heard the noise of the people as they shouted, he said to Moses, 
there is a noise of war in the camp. But he said, it's not the sound of shouting for victory or the sound of the cry of defeat, but the sound of singing that I hear. And as soon as he came near the camp and saw the calf and the dancing, Moses' anger burned hot. And he threw the tablets out of his hand and broke them at the foot of the mountain. He took the calf that they had made and he burned it with fire. And he ground it to powder. And he scattered it on the water. And he made the people of Israel drink it. This is God's word to us. Let me pray now and ask him to teach us his word this morning. Uh, Father, this is a strange passage for us in many ways. We do pray that you would make the strange familiar. Um, Lord, that you would help us to see uh, how the Bible deconstructs uh, our own stories, um, how the gospel reconstructs a story made in a life with you that Jesus gives us. We pray, God, that you would challenge us as men, that you would remake us, that you would renew us in the image of your Son. Um, We pray, Father, that uh, our conversations at our table would be helpful and that you would use us as a means of grace. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so let me uh, just summarize what we've just read for a moment. Moses is... You know this at this point, he's the undisputed leader of Israel, he's the mediator of God's people, he mediates uh, the conversation that continues between God and the people of Israel, and he has traveled up to Mount Sinai to meet with God. God called him up to the mountain, and God said, leave the people down there, and so the people are down at the base of the mountain, sort of waiting on Moses. If you turn back a few chapters, beginning in chapter 25, you'll find that the instruction that God is now giving Moses is instruction on the building of the tabernacle. The tabernacle was meant to be a a tent, a a mobile tent, where the presence of God rested with Israel. It was meant to be the place where Israel worshipped, where she would be assured that that God was with her. And Moses is, in this very moment, receiving instructions on the tabernacle. And after this little three-chapter story, we only read a part of it this morning, the tabernacle continues to get built. And all I want you to see is this, that this story takes place, these three chapters, in the midst of a larger story about the tabernacle. So that this little story, these three, this three-chapter story, takes place in a larger story about worship. This is fundamentally a story about worship. But for now, Moses is on the mountain, and the people are left down at the foot of the mountain as he meets with God, and they become very, very restless. Uh, it's taken too long, they think. And they fall into a panic because they've lost contact with their leader. They don't know what to do. And so what do they do? They literally, they literally make a new leader. They, they construct for themselves a new Moses so that the calf functions as a new mediator. Now, this is important. The calf is not necessarily a new God, okay? The calf is not meant to be necessarily a new God. If you look at me at verse 4, they claim, the people do themselves, that this is the God, this is the Yahweh who has brought us out of Egypt. So that the calf is not replacing Yahweh, the calf is instead a pagan representation of Yahweh. One commentator puts it like this. He says, The Israelites are not saying that this calf and not the Lord brought them out of Egypt. They are saying that the Lord's presence is now associated with this piece of gold. Now, there's a name for this uh, in English. We call this syncretism. Syncretism. Okay? Syncretism is the blending, or let me just put it in Israel's case. Israel here is blending their faith in Yahweh. They're blending their faith in the Lord with the dominant cultural vision, the cultural paganism around them. So syncretism is the blending of two different, mostly incompatible views of life. Incompatible views of the world so that you often end up 
with one view in the end with a ton of internal inconsistencies. So, for example, here's Israel. They have a calf that they have made for themselves who they claim has parted the Red Sea. A lot of inconsistencies there. So the people with Aaron's help make this golden calf. They use their own resources, which we're learning even as Moses is on the mountain. These resources are meant to be used for the real place of worship, the tabernacle. But they're not reserving it for that. They don't know that at this point. They're just using their gold to construct the calf. And as you see, very quickly, the calf actually helps the people. It helps them uh, psychologically. The calf puts them at ease. They make the calf, and what do they do next? What do they do? They throw, they throw a feast unto Yahweh. They throw a party. So that the calf has returned to them the security that they found when Moses was in their presence. And how does God respond? Well, God is not happy, right? Would you you'd be okay, comfortable saying that? <laughs> he threatens to wipe out Israel entirely, which maybe seems a little harsh to us, but the, the reason is because Israel, in constructing the calf, has abandoned the covenant. And you need to know this if you read the Bible. The covenant is not a handshake bargain that two people make. The covenant was a bond in blood. It was a matter of life and death. It's a matter of life and death. And in this matter of life and death, who steps in but Moses? Moses literally steps in between the anger of God, the wrath of God, and the rebellion of the people. And he reminds God of the promise that God himself had made to Abraham. He says, in effect, look, Lord, if you wipe out Israel, all you'll be doing is vindicating the Egyptians who said all along, you know, you're choosing the wrong way. You just vindicate their argument. Don't do that. And, you know, God says, okay, I won't do that. And God, and God hears Moses, the Bible says. And the people as a whole are spared because of Moses' intercession. Okay. Then they go down the mountain. <laughs> And uh, not all is resolved. The story continues, right? Moses comes down from the mountain, and he confronts the people on behalf of God, just as he had confronted God on behalf of the people. He is a true mediator, right? He comes down, and what does he do? He shatters the law, symbolically saying, look, you haven't just broken a small commandment here. You have abandoned the whole covenant. It's over, Right? And then um, you don't hear this. Well, he does this too. He, he, um, he grinds down. He obliterates the golden calf. He throws it in water. And then what does he do? He makes the people drink the water. Very, very strange. Uh, uh, why does he do that? Well, we're not really sure. <laughs> we're not totally sure. But presumably, he's doing that to identify who the leaders of the rebellion were. So you see, there's another passage in the law in Numbers um, where a woman who is suspected of adultery is made to drink very strange. Made to drink a mixture of dust from the tabernacle and water. And somehow, in the drinking of that mixture, her guilt or innocence comes to the fore. That, that, that dust and water mixture serves as an indicator of her culpability or lack thereof. This seems to be what's happening here. He's trying to figure out who are the leaders of the rebellion. And it really fits with what happens next, the part we didn't read, but you need to know this part. After the people drink the water... Moses calls all the Levite priests to himself. Now, the Levites were also mediators. You can think of, of them as the middle management guys at this point. All right? Moses is CEO mediator. They're the middle management uh, mediators. And Moses calls them to himself, and he says, gird up your swords. They gird up their swords. And um, uh, he says, okay, go and uh, slaughter the leaders of the rebellion. The priests of God's people. Swords on 
their belts, and they go and they slaughter and kill the leaders of the rebellion. They put them to the sword, and that's how chapter 32 ends. No fairy tale here. (laughs) At the end of the story, here's what happens. Israel remains God's people. But they do not remain God's people without the shedding of blood. Blood is shed in order to render justice for the rebellion. Blood is shed in order to keep the covenant that God had made with the people intact. That's how it ends. So what are, you to, what are we to make of this as American men in Dallas, Texas this morning? Well, a couple of things, two things I want you to see. First, I want us to begin with the sin itself, that is the golden calf. The golden calf, the story revolves around the golden calf. I told you early on that the golden calf was not meant to be a new God. It really wasn't meant to be a new God. They named him as Yahweh. He was meant instead to be a new mediator, a new Moses. The calf was meant to be a new way to connect the lives of those people with who God was. And here's what you need to know about the golden calf. The calf was a very, very familiar cultural image in the ancient Near East. It was very familiar. It was a familiar pagan idol. As unusual as a golden calf sounds to us, it was utterly normal to them. So the people got scared. And in their fear, they didn't want to abandon God. He led them out of Egypt. But they wanted some symbol of security in that moment to put their minds at ease. And so what do they reach for? Well, they reached for what they knew. They reached for uh, what was normal, what was friendly, what was culturally familiar, and it just so happened to be a calf. And they made the normal, the friendly, the cultural familiar into their religion. Leslie Newbegin was a British missionary to India. You may have heard that name before. One of his books, he tells a story of visiting a Hindu monastery. Goes to the uh, monastery, spent a lot of time in monasteries, and he says he visited the, the great hall of one of the monasteries, and he noticed... One day, as it had always been there, there was a picture of, uh, of Jesus. There were a picture, in fact, of all the great religious teachers of mankind, and one of the pictures was Jesus in the Hindu monastery. And each year on Christmas Day, all the, you know, all, all the priests in the monastery would come and offer worship to Jesus. In the Hindu monastery, Jesus was being honored He's been venerated as one of the many appearances of deity in human history. And here's what Newbegin writes about the experience. He says this, To me, as a foreign missionary, it was obvious that this was not a step towards the conversion of India. It was instead the co-option of Jesus into the Hindu worldview. Jesus had just become one figure in the endless cycle of karma... He had been domesticated into the Hindu worldview. And then he writes this. It was only slowly, through many experiences, that I began to see something of that domestication had taken place in my own Christianity. The domestication of Jesus Christ, the co-option of God, he says, into my own dominant cultural vision as a Westerner. Newbegin is basically saying this, look, it was so obvious. It was so obvious to me as an outsider. When I went to another culture, that another culture had it all wrong. It was so less obvious uh, that I was doing the exact same thing in my own culture. As you read the story this morning about ancient Israel, 3,600 years or so removed from us, isn't it so obvious for us to notice their syncretism? Isn't it so obvious for us to notice their failure with a golden calf? Now let's turn it on us for a moment. What about us? 
How does our belief in Jesus Christ, our claim that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, how does that get domesticated here this morning in Dallas, Texas? What are our golden calves? What are the cultural symbols that are familiar and friendly and seemingly innocuous to us that we reach for in our moments of panic to put our minds and hearts at ease? Well, I've already made one suggestion this morning. I just want to unpack it for a moment. It goes by the name that I think we share in general as Americans, the American dream. Now, you've heard that name, probably that phrase uh, thrown around a lot in your life. It is a phrase that became a part of our national vocabulary in 1931 when it was first used in a book called The Epic of America. Uh, uh, Last year on July 4th, um, USA Today ran an article called The Price Tag for the American Dream where they actually went through and said this is, you know, basically what you need to make to live the American dream. But that's not the important part. I'm not going to give you the number. In it, they summarized the American dream as this. They said this. It is the belief that with hard work and the freedom to pursue your destiny, you can achieve success. In the article, they interviewed a a professor at Cornell named Thomas Herschel. He co-authored a book called Chasing the American Dream, and he said in the interview this. It's not about getting rich and making a lot of money. The American dream is all about security. We want to feel in the insecure. And we want to feel that our children are going to have a better material life than we do. Herschel and his co-author went on to write that besides economic security, the American dream includes the following. Finding and pursuing a rewarding career. Leading a healthy and personally fulfilling life. And being able one day to retire in comfort. Now you say, what's the problem with that? (laughs) Well, it's a great storyline, right? I mean, it is. It is a great story. Let me repeat them to you. Economic security, a rewarding career, leading a a personally fulfilling life, the ability to retire in comfort. As I stand before you this morning, I can honestly say that I want every single one of those things badly. I want them for myself, and I want them for my children. This is a deeply attractive storyline. The only problem if you're a Christian is that it is not the storyline of Jesus of Nazareth. So if you read the Gospels, then you know that the story that Jesus' life tells is a radically different story. It is not a story of comfort, a story of ease, a story of security. It is a story of risk. It is a story of self-emptying. It is a story of trust in God. And I submit to you as a messenger this morning, that's all, don't shoot me. If Jesus is the leader and the mediator of God's people, and if we count ourselves among that people, then shouldn't our lives tell that story as well? What I want you to see this morning is that it is oh so easy to be where Israel was. It's oh so easy to take two radically different stories to, from other cultures, incompatible visions of how life should be lived and to mash them together in hopes that we can have it all. The God who would rescue us from slavery on one hand and our cultural idols on the other hand. Now listen to me. I want to be careful here, okay? And I want you to listen to me here. I don't want you to walk away this morning thinking that I have said that God is... Um, uh, substantially against any of the things that I've mentioned. 
in and of themselves. I hope you hear me here. God may give you many of these things over the course of your life. The Lord may grant you economic security. He may give you a better life for your children. He may give you a fulfilling career. He may give you these things, just like he could have given the Israelites, herds upon herds of calves. (laughs) Herds upon herds of cattle. What I'm saying is that it is wrong for us to fashion any of these things into gold and to ask those things to deliver us in the name of the Lord. We cannot ask the substance of our cultural idols, the substance of the American dream, to lead us into the promised land. We cannot ask the substance of our cultural idols to judge the worth of your life as a man or to become the object of your security. Now, you may not resonate with this, but I'm going to be candid here this morning. I think personally that my frustration with God so often comes from him not delivering on promises that he never made in the first place. God has promised that our lives would look like Jesus if we follow him. God has promised that he would never leave us nor forsake us because of the ministry of Jesus. He has not promised me a rewarding career. (laughs) He has not promised me an easy retirement, and he has not promised me a fulfilling life. It is unfair to blame God for the failure of our golden calves, men. Uh, Moses shows us what we can do. As Moses demonstrates, you can hold God all day to the promises that he has made. He does that. But it is not reasonable to blame God for failing to deliver on the promises that he never made to us in the first place. Okay, I'm sure you get the picture here. It's closer than we think, maybe closer than we'd like to talk about. The sin of the golden calf is syncretism. It's the domestication of God into the dominant cultural vision of someone's time and place. And it is always a temptation, always a temptation for the people of God. For this, uh, us as Christians this morning, Jesus should lead us. He should tell the story of our lives, not the, you know, not the American dream. Which brings the second point I want to see this morning in the passage. Not only I want to leave you with some description of the sin of the golden calf, but I also want you to see the saving work of the mediator. The saving work of the mediator, okay? So in many ways, uh, uh, Moses is the hero of Israel, right? You see that in the passage? Moses speaks up when God is ready to destroy Israel, and God listens to him. He relents on behalf of Moses. But I want you to notice what happens when Moses comes down the mountain, right? In the story, Moses becomes, on his way down from the mountain, he becomes the conduit of God's anger. So that when Moses comes down from the mountain, he no longer speaks on behalf of the people. Now he is speaking on behalf of the wrath of God. So in verse 19, when it describes uh, Moses' anger, it does so in the exact terms that it just described God's anger. It says that Moses' anger burned hot. And what we're supposed to see there is that this is God mediating his anger through Moses. So that when Moses comes down the mountain, it seems that Moses has managed to pacify some of God's anger, but not all of it. Moses breaks the tablet of the commandments. I told you what that was about to show. It's just not one small thing that they've done. They've broken the covenant. He makes them to drink the dust, and then he sends the Levites to turn their sword upon the leaders of the rebellion. What are we to make of all of this? Well, as I said earlier, Israel's covenant with God was a bond in blood. 
That meant that if either party failed to live up to the covenant obligations, if either party broke the covenant, there were no excuses. Justice demanded that one of the parties, either party, pay with their lives. The sword would be turned upon them. And so, though the words of Moses could pacify some of the obligations of justice for some of the people, we're to see that his words could not settle all the obligations of justice for all of the people. That sort of sufficiency, that kind of intercession would fall to the work of another mediator. It would fall to the work of another Moses. Not the golden calf, mind you, but the one whom John identified as the Lamb of God, who had come to take away the sins of the world. The one whose very life was the life of God, so that Jesus becomes not only the covenant keeper, but he also becomes the substitute for the covenant breaker. And at the cross, even more than Moses, the sword of justice that Jesus himself deserved to wield as the true mediator, as the true Levite, the sword of justice that God himself deserved to wield as the one who had been wronged in the covenant. At the cross, God turns that sword not upon you or upon me, but upon himself. Men, if Jesus Christ is your mediator, you never need to fear the wrath of God. It has been fully pacified. Now, sons of God, you should fear his discipline. He will discipline you as a good father disciplines his sons. But his wrath has been poured out on the life of another. And what does all this have to do with golden calves and American dreams? Well, if that Cornell professor is right, and what the American dream is really all about is not just getting rich, but it's about security. And can I tell you this morning, the gospel offers you that in spades. Just like the golden calf was a poor substitute for Moses, the American dream is a poor substitute for Jesus Christ. He offers the security of God's love in a world that will never die, in a world that will one day be remade, and that should give you as a man the courage to live radically different in your world right now. To live not a different story, but his story, in his joy, from the place of his security, He offers himself to you in the place of your golden calf and calls you to live with him, not just as a savior, but as your leader. Be heed his call this morning. Let me pray for us. Father, we thank you for your word to us. We do pray that you would give us courage to believe it, that you would help us to see the syncretism in our own hearts and lives. Um, Oh Lord, and that you uh, you would call us out of it. Uh, Father, you've given us many things. We pray that we would not trust in those things, but that we would live radically different from the place of great security and joy that Jesus has given us. Help us to trust him as men. We pray in our work, in our lives as husbands, Father, in our play, in all that we do. In Christ's name, amen.